Would you stand this morning as Cantrell comes to read God's word for us? The Lord has given vent to his full wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priest, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They are so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you are unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say, they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor, the elders no favor. Moreover, our eyes failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers we watched for a nation that could not save us. People stalked us at every step, so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow, we would live among the nations. This is the word of the Lord from Lamentations 4, verses 11 through 20. Thank you. You may be seated. When we began this series a few weeks ago... I shared with you that my goal, as this is also the season of Lent, was that this series would give us some, some disciplines and some practices to help us use the Bible to, to practice lament together and, and to use this really difficult practice, though very necessary practice, to help refresh our souls in the midst of some of the difficult times we've been facing ourselves, but also to honor the Lord at the same time that we would be faithful to his word and that we would proclaim even in in hardship the the truths that we know and believe about him and last week we got into the heart of the book in chapter three and it was so beautiful it was so wonderful because of his great love we are not consumed his compassions never fail they are new every morning great is his faithfulness and then we turn to chapter four and the bottom falls out again it just doesn't feel right because we had the happy ending we were looking for last week and some of you probably wished we would have stopped right there. But we come here into chapter 4 and as one author described this, we, we wish Lamentations finished with the third poem because it was an ending we could live with. Admittedly, it began with a bleak portrayal of suffering and judgment, but then it turned to declarations of faith and hope and it encouraged us with affirmations of Yahweh's goodness and compassion and the commitment of his character. And we were inspired by the prophet turning back to Yahweh in a prayer of repentance. But this fourth poem, the writer says, takes us right back to where we started. But isn't 
my friends, isn't this how life truly is? When we are, are staring into the face of difficult and dark times, we have high points and low points. We do have those moments where we stand upon what we know and to believe is true about God. And we proclaim those things, and even in darkness and even in the valley, sometimes we can worship. But when we're still staring at the difficulty, sometimes when those hard times are still present, we need to talk about them some more. And the prophet here in Lamentations is saying, yes, I believe all of those things to be true, and I know that God's promises are going to restore us. But we are still at our lowest point, and specifically he deals with in chapters 4 and 5 some things that need to be said out loud that weren't necessarily covered in detail previously, that it is the religious establishment that's failed. The, the very leaders that God had called to lead his people, to serve his people, and to facilitate their worship of God were the ones who had failed the most. And now all of the people are paying the price for the failures of their leaders, their shepherds, their prophets, their priests, those who were supposed to be the voice of God in the midst of the people. And this chapter also is much like we've seen throughout Lamentations. It goes back and forth between I, this very personal lament, and, and very personal taking of responsibility, I, but also language of we, and language that also is very common in the Bible. We, we often as American Christians, we take such an individualistic approach to the Bible that we focus more often than not on that personal decision, that personal repentance, that personal responsibility. And all of that is really good. It's important. But most of the Bible, and in, particularly, in particular the Old Testament, it is written to the second person plural. It's written to y'all, okay? It's not just to you. It's to you all. It is to the community of faith. And these last two chapters of Lamentations really do, they do both. They talk to you and to I, but they also talk to y'all and to we and, and bring that responsibility that the whole community bears together for their sin and their need for repentance. And so today we have two chapters. We're not obviously going to be able to cover them all completely. There are two parts to the message. There are two points in each. And part one really addresses us, y'all, we, as the community of faith. Part two then will get a little bit more personal. Part one begins, I think, with something that is really important in terms of application to our day as well. That the greatest threats to the faithfulness of God's people come not from the outside, but from within. Where does fracturing start? Fracturing starts on the inside. Where, where do we read in Lamentations that the weaknesses began to be exposed? Was it in the external was it in their walls was it because their their security was breached from the outside no time and again the prophet reminds us that this downfall this spiral towards destruction began with their own sinful hearts and their own unfaithfulness within the community of faith 
Judah was not defeated by threats from the outside, but God allowed her to fall because of unfaithfulness within. And indeed, as verse 11 describes, it was the full vent of God's smoldering wrath that lit the fire that consumed the foundations of Judah and Jerusalem. If you look back to the beginning of chapter 4, there are these vivid descriptions that we're used to now in Lamentations of, of what the conditions are like in Judah and what it looked like as this nation, this people, this community built on faith and built on God's law and God's scripture as it began to collapse from the inside out. Listen to some of these descriptions from the beginning of chapter 4. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold has become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of potter's hands. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those who were brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. If you're reading along with me there, you notice that I skipped a few verses. I told you at the beginning of this series I was going to do that because there are some things, even though they're scripture, that I'm not sure we should say out loud with young ears in the room. There are some harsh, devastating consequences being faced. And Lamentations describes some things that I don't want to say and describe out loud. This is just a sampling. The fracturing that began on the inside of the community. Those were the greatest threats. And God warned them over and over again. And you can go back to the first five books of the Bible, especially starting in Exodus when God starts giving the law. And in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, over and over again, God says to them, not just to you, to them, my people, if you keep my commandments and walk faithfully with me and honor the covenant, it will go well for you. Not only will it go well, things are going to be great because we're going to be together and you when you are right in the center of my will, you will experience the best life has to offer. But he also tells them in those same chapters, if you don't honor me, if you don't obey my commandments, if you don't keep the covenant, things will not just go bad or be average. They will be the worst of the worst. And God says, I'm going to send you others to warn you and to remind you to try to get you back on the right path but if you refuse you're going to experience not the best but the worst and in the midst of it you're going to feel my hand that was on you protecting you removed and no longer will you really feel that relationship that we once had where I said of you, you are my people and I am your God. 
He warned them. He told them time and again. And now he's the one who's lit the fire, allowing this destruction to come. And it's amazing how the rest of the world watches and their reaction. They didn't believe because of Jerusalem's power and strength, because for so many generations it had been so unassailable. Even as we, we studied in the summer of kings last summer, that so many of those kings were unfaithful and unwise. Jerusalem still had not fallen to her enemies. But the nations watched in amazement as God's will, hear that, as God's will allowed the city to fall. And now the foes of Israel had entered the gates of Jerusalem. And, and the prophet makes very clear this happened not because of the will of their enemies, not because their enemies were more powerful than God, but it happened because the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests were such that they shed within Jerusalem the blood of righteous people. And they, as the leaders of the community of faith, were not following God anymore. I would say to us, the greatest threats to the church today as God's covenant people today. Do we look at the church and say the church is exactly like Israel? No, but we are God's covenant people today. We bear his name as the church, as his bride, as his body. And I would say to you, the greatest threats to the church today are not those on the outside, but those within. And I, I hear it all the time this sentiment from American Christians especially that there's some great persecution coming that's going to take away our voice in the public square. And I can't tell you whether or not that's going to happen, but I can tell you long before that happens, we are in danger of forfeiting our voice in the public square on our own. Because of our own unfaithfulness, because of our own tendency to be distracted and to do the same thing we see the people doing here, putting their trust in people and in parties and in leaders and in wealth and comfort and security and in our own strength in such a way that we're putting our faith in places that cannot deliver what they promise and people who cannot deliver what they promise because they're not God. Only He is worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise. He's the only one to whom we should ever say, great are you, as we sang this morning. Great are you, Lord. The truth is, we are in danger. The church is in danger, and we, we sense it. We know it. And that's part of the reason we react so much out of fear, because we wonder what's coming next. But listen, look to Lamentations. See an example from the past. Learn a lesson from the failures of our ancestors in faith. This is exactly what happened to God's people in Judah. And it started with the leadership. Point number two, speaking to the community. When God's appointed leaders defile themselves, what is, is sacred be, becomes profane. And this is such an affront, an offense to God. When he sees profane things within his sacred community, and we're not just talking about physical spaces like the temple or or buildings or churches 
He's talking about the hearts of his leaders, the hearts of his people, and how through their attitudes and actions they were not representing him, but they were representing evil, shameful things. Now verse 14 says, those who, who used to be the eyes of, of, of the law and truth for the people to help them see and understand, who used to be the, the voice of, of God speaking through them to his people, now they grope through the streets like they're blind people. They're no longer clean. They're like unclean people who have been de defiled with blood. No one wants to touch their garments. People talk about the priests and the prophets now as unclean. Go away. We want nothing to do with you. And, and the priests and prophets of God who used to sit and, and, uh, on the high seats and, and stand on the high platforms of honor, now they're not welcome anywhere. They flee, they wander about. Even among the nations, people say, you aren't welcome here. You can stay no longer. The prophets and priests who were supposed to seek God, now they are spiritually blind. They are ritually unclean. And you get the, the impression from the language here. It sort of reminds us of Shakespeare's Macbeth. When we see Lady Macbeth overwhelmed and obsessively washing her hands because of her involvement in the plot to murder King Duncan, even though she didn't commit the murder herself, she was a part of the evil, and she's obsessively washing her hands because there's blood on her hands. The prophets, the priests, the leaders of God's people, they were supposed to represent God and deliver his word and now they have blood on their hands. Listen, this is really hard. It's not popular to talk this way right now in American churches, but, but I'm going to do it. We also have to be willing to ask, where do we have blood on our hands? Where do we, even looking back in the past into our history, have blood on our hands? Where have we... In, in spaces that are supposed to be sacred or at least proclaim what is sacred? Where have we defiled ourselves and allowed shameful things to be present in the community of faith? I believe one of the most common blind spots in, in the church today is, is our refusal to acknowledge fully and repent completely of those shameful attitudes and actions that have been a part of us. And, and some of them may be mostly in the past, but they still echo in the attitudes of many today. In our own denomination, this stuff just keeps coming back. And so many in our own denomination keep pushing back against it and resisting it instead of just fully owning where wrong has been done in the past. There are many who have allowed profane things to exist. There are churches in our denomination who publicly have been shamed because of covering up sexual abuse. We have a history in our denomination of significant racism. We also have participated and still participate in other forms of dehumanization through the language that people use and the attitudes that are allowed to be present. Things that are, are profane where the sacred should be. And oftentimes calls for, for corporate repentance, because again, we, we love the individual repentance, but calls for corporate 
repentance from the community of faith like we see in Lamentations, they're met with responses like, well, why should we apologize for things that happened before we were born? Or others will say, why, why can't we just stop dwelling on the past and just focus on preaching the gospel? It's interesting how that last response, can't we, can't we just preach the gospel? It's very selectively used because there are some issues that that folks are very comfortable addressing and want to hear addressed, but there are others, and usually it's the ones that kind of get on our own toes a little bit, right, that we're not quite so comfortable addressing. Can't we just preach the gospel? Yes, we can and we should, but the gospel has implications for our relationship with God, of course, but also our relationship with others. And if we want to be leaders in things like racial reconciliation, if we want to be leaders and, and among the most ardent defenders of the vulnerable and the abused and the downtrodden, then we must own our sins personally as individuals, but also corporately as a community of faith. And it's, it's right and good for us to do that because that kind of confession and repentance, though it's hard for us and it might offend some people, True confession and repentance is pleasing to God. And we should do it. Because there was blood on their hands, God removed Judah from their holy places. He removed their priests, prophets, and kings from positions of leadership. He scattered them outside of his sacred places. And the priests were no longer shown honor. The elders, no favor. The community of faith as it was once known no longer even exists and the next part of these final two chapters it it moves us from from the nation overall and its leaders to the heart of the individual person from those who had defiled themselves and allowed sacred spaces to be filled with profanity now it moves to the personal and and here's where i hope this will turn us also to something a little more hopeful we, we do want the happy ending at the end of this book, and we're going to get there in just a moment. If you are feeling the weight of all that we've just read and all that's just been said, the weight of, of the community of faith on your shoulders, as often we feel, here's some good news that even Lamentations bring, brings out from the lowest point. When we hit rock bottom, there's only one place left to look, Right? The only way to look is up. And look at verse 17. Moreover, our eyes failed. Looking in vain for help from our towers, we watched for a nation that could not save us. Here you see, even in the individual hearts of the people, a description of what was their greatest problem, at least one of their greatest problems. They kept looking for help in the wrong places. All along, if they just would have been looking to God for restoration, for protection in repentance, their help would have come. But they kept looking in the wrong places. They kept looking for political solutions. They looked to the kings of other nations. They looked to the false gods and idols of other nations. They trusted their wealth. They trusted their security. They trusted in their armies. 
But guess what? Here's what the prophet's saying now. The kings of the earth couldn't save us. Baal and Asherah couldn't save us. Egypt and Assyria couldn't save us. Our own walls and armies couldn't save us. Our wealth, our strength couldn't save us. Our own armies could not save us. Our empty rituals did not save us. The only salvation we have is found in God, and we rejected him. That's what the prophet's saying. Thus we were lost, and we were stumbling around in the dark. If you look to the beginning of chapter 5, some more of this language comes out. Our inheritance was turned over to strangers. Our homes were given away to foreigners. We became fatherless. Our mothers became widows. We are bearing the punishment of our ancestors. Listen to this. Who sinned and are no more. But now we're paying the price for people who died and on their way out, instead of teaching us to seek God, they just kept digging a deeper hole. And they're no longer here. They didn't turn their hearts back to God and neither did we. And now slaves rule over us. We are lower than slaves. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. And you hear this language of looking up. Now this language of repentance. Woe to us for we have sinned. All this from chapter 5. God removed his hand of protection. He removed his blessing. He removed his direction from their paths. Walking in the way they were supposed to go. And now they're like animals being hunted. Look at that language. We're being stalked. Our pursuers are swifter than eagles in the, in the sky. They, they chase us on the flat land over the mountains. We cannot outrun them. And verse 20 really hits at the lowest point. Our very life breath. All that God was giving us through, through the people who led us and, and through our identity as the community of faith, our very life breath was caught in the traps of our enemies. And though we thought we could live under his shadow, now we live among the nations. When we hit rock bottom, the only way to look is up. And when we think about learning lessons from the past, Judah had an example to learn lessons from their brothers and sisters, at least their, their, their blood, their fellow country people from the past, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Because, yes, here now Judah has fallen to Babylon, but a century and a half earlier, Assyria took control of the northern kingdom of Israel. They fell into the hands of another great empire, Assyria. And Amos, the great prophet to the northern kingdom, Israel, this is what he had said to them. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. That's all that the people of God had to do in the face of another powerful, overwhelming enemy. Seek me, God said, to them and you will live. The northern kingdom didn't listen. The southern kingdom of Judah, Jeremiah, 
the prophet's people. They did not seek the Lord so that they might live. And as a result, the bottom indeed fell out. Now the end of chapter 4 does give us a little bit of hope. We won't read it, but, but it makes clear that the wrongdoing of Israel's enemies is also going to be punished. So God wants to make sure they understand. Yeah, you guys are facing justice for your own wrongdoing, but don't worry. Your enemies, unless they turn and repent, that they'll face their own consequences. They'll face wrongdoing. But, but the prophet, though he gives that sort of as a side note, he brings things home and says, as we said in the beginning, but this isn't about them. Right now, this is about the evil that exists in our own hearts and community. And the result of that, the reason we are at this low point is because we have rejected God. The hopeful end to Lamentations, though, comes in chapter 5. And this, which was true for them, is also true for us. Though we often forsake and forget Him, the Lord always loves and remembers us. Isn't that hopeful and isn't it true? That though we often forget God and forsake our covenant with Him, He never forgets us. He always loves us and He always remembers His covenant with us as His new covenant people. And though we may feel like the prophet sometimes forgotten and abandoned, the truth of Scripture is that God is the God who remembers Lamentations 5 begins that way. Remember us, Lord. It's a call of prayer. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. God, look at us and see our disgrace. You can go to the book of Deuteronomy. A few of you did this as an exercise a few weeks ago. Count how many times in that book, as the people were wandering in the wilderness and, and for 40 years had been withheld from the promised land, Count how many times in Deuteronomy the word remember comes up. It's in almost every chapter. God remembered them then. He remembers his people here in Lamentations. And he is the God that remembers us. Even in this season of 2020, 2021, and boy, we hope 2022 is going to be better and it isn't yet. He remembers us too. He remembers us as a community. He remembers us individually as his people. And, and for those who will return to him, they will see that he has not forgotten them, that his love never fails, that he sees us in our disgrace. Though often we forsake and forget him, the Lord always loves and remembers us. And I love what, when I often talk with our, our staff members about things that we see in these scripture passages. I love what Karen Pirtle said. Lamentations begins with lament, but it ends with praise. And here are the last verses of Lamentations. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord that we may return, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Though we often forsake and forget him, 
the Lord always remembers us and his love never fails his compassions they are new every morning so because of his great love we are not consumed great is his faithfulness amen let's pray together God I thank you today that we do not come into this place as people who have no hope but we are people who have the greatest hope because we know of Jesus Christ. We know of the cross. And we know of the resurrection. We know that you defeated sin and death so that we can be made right with you. Not through sacrifices and offerings, but through becoming living sacrifices, laying down our lives for you and giving our all to you. Lord, I pray today that you would lead us to a path of righteousness and in faithfulness. As individuals, Lord, would you speak to each of our hearts today personally and show us what it means to walk faithfully with you? But also, would you show us what our role is as members of your global community of faith, the church, and show us as a local church here at South Tulsa what it looks like for us to be faithful to the past, in the present, and in the future. And Lord, we give you this time, and we ask that you would move in a powerful way in every heart, in Jesus' name.